City Light, I would like to start by saying this. Um, the last year and a half for this church family has been a trip, hasn't it? Yes. What an adventure. Over the last year and a half since we planted this thing, a whole bunch of people have been added to our numbers. Um, by God's grace, we've launched city groups in just about every corner of our city. Um, we have baptized more people than we originally started the church with. Yes. That's pretty exciting, right? Um, one thing that gets me excited, one of the fastest growing areas of our church is college students and young adults, the least likely people to step foot in a church building on a Sunday morning in our country. And listen, I don't know why God has like backed up his dump truck of grace and poured it out on us, um, but I'm thankful that he's done it and because he's awesome. And my prayer every day is just that he doesn't stop. This is a movement of God, a work of God. Behind the scenes, it's God's moving. And uh, on the other side of that, it's God who gets the glory. He is doing a great work. And I pray that he doesn't stop. Now, as we move forward, we continue to grow. God continues to give us influence uh, in our city. The, the question that I have been asking myself, and I ask it quite a bit, is this. Down the road, what will City Light be known for? In our city, when Omaha thinks about City Light... What will be the defining characteristic of our church in the years, days, months to come? What will it be? Will it be our stance on certain political issues? Will it be the things that we're against or the things that we're for? Will it be, oh, they grew fast. (laughs) There's a lot of young people. What will be our reputation in a city? Will it be what Jesus said should be the defining mark of a Christian, which he said is love? John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, by, all pe- by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? That you love one another. Love. Will it be love? City Light, when people think about us, this community, this church family in our city, the thing I want them to think about us is love. Although City Light folks, not perfect, right? A lot of facial hair. Don't know how that happened But number one, love. Those folks love Jesus and they love his word. Those folks have a radical love and commitment toward each other. Those folks love our city and make it better. And though I might not agree with them, I think they actually love me. I think they care about me. Uh, Not a squishy, ethereal, formless love, but a a rich in truth, gospel-centered, self-sacrificing, tangible love. That's what I want us to be known for. 10 years from now, 2024, I pray that when people think about City Light, they think about love. If that's the case, then I think that we have done something right. So this morning in our First John series, we're going to take a look at eight verses. And the topic that John is going to take us to is the topic of the love of God. Um, how does God love us through Christ, and how is it that we are to love each other? And so very simply, the big idea for this morning is that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Now, before you think, okay, Gavin's taking us into Christian kindergarten this morning, right? Kind of fold your hands and uh, say, I was hoping for something a little meatier today. Let me say this. Uh, The love of God demonstrated through the cross of Christ is both the foundation and the grandsome essence of the Christian faith. It really is. It's so simple that my daughter, who is two, I think at some level understands that Jesus loves her and she is to love her brothers. 
yet so complex that for all of eternity, those who know Christ will search out the love of God, never plumbing its depth or exhausting its full understanding. That's how amazing the love of God is. Uh, In the 1960s, well, in the 20th century, there was a theologian named Karl Barth. A lot of evangelicals uh, gravitate toward him, read his volumes. He was a German guy, uh, wrote a lot of notable publications. And in uh, 1962, he came and kind of did a speaking tour in the U.S. He was at Princeton Theological Seminary. He had just completed his kind of most grand work that was called Christian Dogmatics. And the story goes that after lecturing in the seminary, one of the young seminarians asked him, now, Carl, how would you summarize your Christian dogmatics? This was a four-volume, 8,000-page document. Great contribution into Christian literature. Uh, Seminarian said, how would you summarize the thought behind that? Carl thought for a moment, and then he replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think his point being that if you were to to boil down, to simmer down the Christian message into its purest form, it is the love of God demonstrated through the cross of Christ. And so City Light, more than likely you are not going to hear anything from the pulpit this morning that you've never heard before. Don't plan on it to blow your mind. Probably won't be that insightful, theologically deep. Or, or anything that you're going to tweet out saying, I've never heard this perspective before, but my prayer is that as we look at the love of God this morning, uh, that something would happen in here. See, I think we're very familiar with the topic. I don't know that we're very familiar with it in our experience, though. John, the guy who wrote this, was so familiar with the love of God, he nicknamed himself the one whom Jesus loves. <laughs> That's my prayer, that we would walk out not learning something new, but having a new identity. Who am I? I'm the one that Jesus loves. All right, so I'm going to take a look at these eight verses, and uh, really I have three goals. Number one, I want to show us uh, that we really are actually very bad at loving, okay? That this is a very good idea. Everyone is pro-love, but you and me, we don't love well, and that we need Jesus, okay? Number two, I want to bring us uh, to the forefront of the love of God in Jesus, that we might revel in his sacrificial love for us. And number three... I would propose the love of Jesus is both the pattern and the power for us to love each other well and love our city well. Amen? Amen. That's the goal. Let's do it. Verse 11. We're going to start with one verse. This is kind of John's theme verse uh, for this whole section. This is his thesis. This is the command. This is what we're to do. Look at just the first verse with me. It says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Simple enough, right? So John's writing to some new Christians. He's saying, uh, this is nothing new. Since you became a Christian, the idea of the love of God, that you should love each other, has been very familiar to you. You should love one another. And I want you to notice he's writing to Christians, right? And he says that you should love who? One another. Uh, The idea is this, that that we should love everybody, but uh, it starts with the family of God. That's our witness. Galatians 6.10 says it this way, let us do good for all people, but especially for the household of faith. See, I'm a dad, I have three kids, and I care about all kids, right? But wouldn't it be a tragedy if I said, kids, my commitment is to feed children. And so I went off to feed children and left my own kids hungry. That would be a tragedy, right? 
So the idea is this, we feed all kids, but we feed our kids first. And so uh, the idea is that Christians should be loving people. That love begins in here and it spills out with no exception. Do good to all people, especially to the household of faith. And so um, verse 11, he sets out the thesis. Anyone disagree that loving other people is a good idea? Generally accepted, right? Everyone is pro-love. Unless you're the newest member of ISIS, you probably love love. We all love love. We agree we should love. That sounds nice, but can I keep it real for just a second and say this is actually very hard to live out, isn't it? This is very hard to live out. Why? Because people are complicated and I'm selfish. (laughs) That makes loving very difficult. Any amens? People are difficult and I am selfish and it is hard to love. The human being I love the most in this world is my wife. Would die for her, gladly, without second thought. But at 3 a.m. when the baby is crying and someone needs to get up to console that child and give it a passy, what do I do? My first proclivity is to pretend like I'm asleep, okay? (laughs) Year 2000, I was the state of Nebraska high school, uh, number one, what was the award? Most outstanding actor in the state. Believe me when I say I've utilized that skill and talent to salvage a half hour of sleep in the middle of the night, right? (laughs) At 3 a.m., The natural inclination of my heart is, let me get out of bed before Sarah. The first response is, I wonder if I milk this long enough, if she'll think I'm actually sleeping through it, right? I'm selfish. Loving is actually difficult. Our first inclination is not to love. Our first inclination is to hate, right? Uh, Maybe some of you can relate to that, not only in your family. Maybe you joined a Bible study or a small group or a city group, and you thought, I'm going to love some people that are just really easy to love. And so you went in thinking it was going to be easy, and then you met the dude that goes off on the theological tangents and talks the whole time about Renaissance art, and you're like, how do I love this guy, right? His marriage is a train wreck. I want him to know the Word of God. I'm here to help. But dude, you were just too difficult, right? And it's just easiest to walk away. And isn't it true that the idea of love, we're all on board with it. But when we look at our lives and our situations, uh, we realize it's a little bit harder than we first thought. It's difficult to actually love. And knowing this, John doesn't stop in verse 11, right? He gives us the commandment, but then he's going to break this idea down for us a little bit further this morning, and he's going to take it in two different places to help us understand our own hearts and the love of Jesus and how that is to be given to us and then live through us. And the first thing he's going to talk about is hate. Uh, That's fun, right? The very first thing he's going to talk about is hate. That's the natural inclination of the human heart apart from the grace of God is a posture of hate. And then the second thing he's going to take us to Uh, after the diagnosis is the cure, and that is love. The love of Jesus given to us and the love of Jesus demonstrated to us. And so with our other seven verses, uh, I want to hit it in two points. Point number one is going to be this, hate. How do we hate? Look at verse 12. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hate. So after John tells us that we're to love one another, the first thing he says, kind of step one, is don't hate. Seems like a reasonable first step, right? 
and he takes us to the person of Cain. I realize some people in the room know the historical story of Cain and Abel. Some of us don't, so let me summarize it briefly in 60 seconds. In Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it records the creation of the world and of the first people, Adam and Eve. God made Adam and Eve in his likeness, image, and form and placed them in the garden where they enjoyed relationship with God, fellowship with one another, and an all-you-could-eat buffet that made Charleston's look like uh, Jimmy John's, okay? They had things well. But God said, I've got one rule. You are to eat from anything on this buffet, but not the one forbidden fruit. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, rather than obeying God, chose to rebel against God and do the one thing they weren't allowed to do, and they ate the fruit. And that is what theologians call the fall of man. That is where sin entered the human relationship and where humanity once enjoyed intimate, uninterrupted fellowship with God and with each other. They were now separated from fellowship with God and strained in their fellowship with each other. So sin has entered the world. Uh, Adam and Eve post-sin then conceive and have a couple sons and they name them Cain and Abel. So now we have the ingredients of sin and siblings. Any parents out there? What's the inevitable outcome of sin and siblings? Sibling fighting. Amen? Anyone out there have siblings? Anyone ever fought with your siblings? You're not the first one. goes all the way back to our very first siblings, Cain and Abel. And the fight that John is referring to is a fight that was recorded in Genesis 4. Um, The story goes like this. Cain was a guy who raised crops. Abel was a guy who raised livestock. And occasionally they would get together to worship God, to do church similar to this, I presume, but in a lot of ways different. And they would bring what's called an offering. An offering, for those of you who don't tithe, is the idea that God gives us everything that we have. uh, And from the very beginning, man has recognized that and said, God, this is a gift from you. I want to give to you the very first fruits of what you've given to me as an act of worship. We call that an offering. Cain and Abel did this. And so they would harvest their animals, they would harvest their grains, and they would give the first fruits to God in worship. But Genesis 4 says that God received Abel's offering as acceptable, but not Cain's. Reading this growing up, never understood that. I thought, does God love animals more than grain, or grain more than animals? Uh, Genesis doesn't actually say why God rejected his, but Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says this, that that Abel's offering was given in faith. We can presume then that, that Cain's was not. The idea being that God's problem with Cain's offering wasn't his actual contribution, but the character of his heart in that moment. Abel was a man dedicated to, Lord, to the Lord. He wanted to give an offering to God to honor God. Cain wanted to compete with Abel. Cain came to church not to worship God, But to go into the parking lot and say, do I have the the nicest car here? He went into the sanctuary and kind of compared. I've got better clothes than him. He went to the offering box and made sure that everybody saw what he put in and that it was better than his brother. And and, and God had a problem not with what was in his hands, but what was in his heart. And it wasn't faith, it was competition. And that was revealed when God didn't accept his offering, uh, but he did accept Abel's offering. What did Cain do? He kills Abel, right? He kills Abel out of anger and jealousy and sinfulness. Cain kills Abel. 
And so John takes us to this story. What does that have to do with you and I? He takes us to the story of Cain and Abel because that seed of sin and selfishness and hate that was inside of Cain is inside of me and it's inside of you. Hate was inside of Cain and it's inside of each one of us. Cain was the prototype, the first generation of sinful man. And apart from God's grace, we are Cain's posterity. We hate. For point number one, I would define hate this way. Hate is to sacrifice others for the good of the self. It's to sacrifice or to use other people for the good of self. And we do this. Cain didn't like playing second fiddle to Abel, and so Cain sacrificed Abel for his own good so that his position would be elevated. And we do the same thing. Inside of us is a tendency not to sacrifice ourselves to make ourselves vulnerable, that other people might be in a more advantageous position. The natural inclination of our heart is the exact opposite, isn't it? Self-preservation. We need to protect ourselves, and apart from God's grace, we will use each other to make much of ourselves. We'll sacrifice each other to protect ourselves. The reason why I pretend to be asleep when Levi is crying is because I am Cain's offspring, Cain is not about Cain and Abel alone. It's about me and it is about you. And it's to expose our hearts that we need grace because we're not lovers, we're haters. Right? Any haters in the room? We're haters. That's who we are. This is the diagnosis. This is bad news. That's why when I encounter messy people, right, you get involved in a situation and you think, man, this knot is wound so tight I don't even want to know what to do. My first inclination is to recoil. I don't want to get my hands dirty i got three kids. I'm busy. I've got my own stress and drama. I see your drama. My first inclination is, how do I avert this situation and not get involved? Why? Because I am Cain's son. The sin and hate and murder that was in him is in me. That's why when I watch TV, a Compassion International ad comes on, what do I do? Do I lean in and take notes? no one else is home, I change the channel. Why? I don't even want to be aware of the endless volume of need in this world because it makes me uncomfortable. I not only don't want to sacrifice my money for someone else, I don't even want to sacrifice my comfort to look on their need and care. Why? I don't naturally love. I naturally hate. And so do you. And so, doom and gloom, what a nice, happy, fun sermon we hate, Okay? That's us. Hallelujah. Let's pray and go home. Uh, The Bible calls this hate, but the the bad news is not over because the hate is in us. The hate is also in the world, okay? Uh, Look with me again at verse 13. It says, do not be surprised, brothers, that's the Christians, that the world hates you. And so what John John is laying out is that we hate, uh, we're guilty of hate, we're also the victims of hate, especially if you're a Christian, especially if you follow Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but guess who the leader of our movement is? A murdered man, okay? That's our Lord. Was Jesus voted most popular in high school, or did he get on to student council? No. Did he win a lot of popularity contests? No. When he was on trial, did the people gather with their foam fingers and their Jesus fan t-shirts and yell, Jesus, you're number one? No. What did they yell? Crucify him. Crucify him. The literal Greek does not translate to we love you. Literally translated means kill him, right? That's our Lord. So newsflash, the guy that we're following, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was 
hated. And what um, John is telling us is don't be surprised. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, uh, you, you might not have to be a martyr, though many in our world are. You don't need self-inflicted wounds. You're going to take some shots, right? Uh, following Christ is not always going to be up and to the right. It's going to be difficult. Contemporary theologian Taylor Swift, maybe you've heard of her. Uh, she sang about this, and I quote, Haters gonna hate, 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 so shake it off. Shake it off. Just shake it off. Shake it off, Right? In a sense, that's what John is saying. He's not giving us a remedy for the infliction of hate. He's just saying, don't be surprised when it's going to happen, right? Haters going to hate, shake it off. And so um, let's review. We hate, haters going to hate, world hates. And uh, actually, I've got one more depressing verse before we get to (laughs) good news. Let's look at verse 15. It says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Okay. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, so to review again, we hate, the world hates, the haters going to hate, and when we hate, we are murderers, right? So it's not just a, a conflict problem, it's, it's a very significant problem. John is quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, even if you have hate in your heart, you're already a murderer. See, you You don't need to end someone's life to be a murderer when evil intent is in your heart. The consequence, the the guilt, the judgment that is upon us as haters is murder, right? Not restrained. The end result of our hate is ultimately death. This is heavy stuff, right? We don't love. We're not good at it. We self-preserve. We sacrifice others, and we use others to get ourselves ahead, and the judgment on us is we are murderers. You're in a room right now full of murderers. Who doesn't feel safe right now, right? That's our heart. Now, before I get to the good news, I just want us to sit in the diagnosis, because the the light of the gospel is only going to really pop if we understand the darkness of our depravity, amen? Let me ask you to be introspective for just a moment. How is it that you hate other people? What do you do? What's your first reaction when you are exposed to the tangible needs of people around you? How is it that you speak of coworkers that annoy the heck out of you? How do you speak of those who have differing political views than you? Okay to hate them? How do you treat people that are under your authority and care? How have you in the past and in the present used and manipulated other people to elevate your own position? Anyone feel guilty yet? I'm a murderer, and so are you. We hate. Apart from God's grace, every one of us is a murderer. That is why verse 11 is impossible. That is why verse 11 is difficult. That is why I pretend like I'm asleep when Levi cries. We are Cain's offspring. But now let me get us to the good news. Uh, Here's where our passage gets past the diagnosis and into the cure. Here's where we get introduced to true and authentic love. Verse 16 says this. By this we know love. That he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It says, by this we know love. How do we know love? What is love? That he, that's Jesus, 
laid down his life for us. Let me give you another definition. This is my definition of love from this text. Love is sacrificing yourself for the good of others. Hate is to sacrifice others, to use others for your own good. To love is to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. In City Light, no one has loved more. No one loves more than Jesus. City Light, here's the good news. We are haters and murderers. We are like Cain, selfish and sinful. But Jesus came to die for Cain's like you and like me. Amen? When you think about the love of God, don't think about a squishy, ethereal, intangible love. You think about the cross of Christ where that love was demonstrated. Amen? This verse is 1 John 3.16. You guys familiar with John 3.16? Another good verse, familiarize with yourself with a new John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, and this is how we know love, that he came and gave himself for us. The love of God is tangible and practical. He sacrificed himself for our good. Jesus took on the punishment that our unloving hearts deserved. Our hearts that sleep in, change the channel, overlook needs, manipulate people for the needs of ourselves. There was a punishment due. Jesus said, let me step in and take that for you, Cain. <laughs> let me sacrifice my good that your position might be elevated into right relationship with Jesus Christ. That is love. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. Now, City Light, here's the key. When you're loved by Jesus, you will then start to love like Jesus. When you've been loved by Jesus, you will then start to love like Jesus. Uh, Put another way, Jesus' love for you becomes Jesus' love through you. Here's where we get a picture of that. Uh, Look with me, starting in 17. He says, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What he's saying is the love of God for you is practical. Uh, It made God come from heaven to earth to meet your need, right? When we had a sin problem, God didn't just kind of open a door in heaven and holler down in word. Uh, Sorry about sins, right? Uh, Hope you get that worked out, but I love you. You'll be fine. Get it worked out. He didn't love in word. What did he do? He loved in truth and in deed. He came down. Jesus took our sins, which were our fault, and he made them his responsibility. You see that? Jesus got his hands dirty when they were clean because we had made a hot mess of our life. Uh, Whose fault is our sin? Jesus's or ours? Ours. It's not his fault. He doesn't have to deal with our sins. But at the cross, Jesus makes that love, makes our fault his responsibility. And when we realize that we have been loved like that, what we'll do when we see tangible needs in the world around us, we will take situations that aren't our fault, we'll make them our responsibility. That's love. You're moving. I own a truck. Well, that's not my fault, <laughs> right? Any truck owners out there? Oh, you know the call. (laughs) Not my fault, but I'll make it my responsibility. That's love. You jacked up your finances? You're in a hot mess? That's not my fault. I took financial peace. I've got the three-month savings. It's not my fault, but guess what? I'll make it my responsibility to see that you get help. That's love. 
Your three kids are sick and you're out of vacation days again. That's not my fault. But I'll make it my responsibility. That's love. Amen? Amen. City Light, as we have been loved and we have the opportunity to love in tangible ways, I want you to know this is not burdensome. This is for our joy. Jesus said in Scripture, it is, great, uh, it is more blessed to give than to receive, right? Therefore, who is the happiest person in the world? Jesus. He gave more than any of us could ever give his eternal life for our sins. And for that reason, he is the most joy-filled person in all of creation and creator. <laughs> Jesus is happy, Right? And the invitation for us to love in tangible, messy, practical, self-sacrificing ways is not burdensome. It is for our joy. It is for our joy. It is difficult in the moment. Jesus did not enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. But it was for the joy set before him on the backside. And in that moment, when you get that call, when you're filling up your truck and the gas tank, right? When you say, let me help. That's not my fault, but I'm going to make it my responsibility Uh, It's not always fun, but it is for our joy. Jesus gives his love to us, dispenses it to us, and then invites us to participate in the joy of loving other people. And so uh, let me ask, City Light, I want to make this exceedingly practical. You've heard nothing new this morning. Let me ask, what are the opportunities in front of your life right now? Situations that are not your fault that you could make your responsibility to love someone well. Who do you know who has real tangible needs that that you could own as if they were your own? What are those things? In sermon prep this week, I wrestled with how to bring this point home at the end here. And I thought, well, you know, there are five different Greek words for the word love. And I could really break down the five different forms of Greek and everyone would be impressed. And uh, talk about why John used the form of love that he used here. And I realized, A, you don't care. You speak English, not Greek. And uh, B, that's not actually going to help you love anyone. I thought, you know, I could, I could really highlight some needs in our city and kind of give a challenge to our church to get after it and, and to do these things well. And then I realized, you know what, I, I think everyone in our congregation has plenty of needs right in front of them if they uh, would open their eyes and see them. And then I realized, you know what, as I think about some of the most astonishing acts of love I've ever witnessed in my life, I realize the vast majority have come from this community right here. That where I have seen this lived out in action has been you guys. And I decided, I think as God led me, to end this sermon this way. I just want to celebrate some of those stories. That we would continue to foster that kind of culture in our church and not only need new intellectual information about the love of God, but celebrate how God has demonstrated his love of God and be a continuing agent of his love in this world. And so let me share a few stories. Love this story. You've heard it a few times. Our dear friend Helen, Sudanese refugee, got connected to our church. She had uh, moved here uh, very recently, was in a very vulnerable situation. Helen was in a homeless shelter. Uh, She had a son, one and a half, two years old, and she was pregnant and expecting. She's in a city and knows no one. She has nothing. She doesn't know how she's going to have this baby provide for her son what is going to happen. And, and our friend Veronica Hill meets her. She helps get her some assistance, an apartment, a job, some public transportation, and she brings her to our church. Uh, then Amy Yost, along with her city group, say, you know what? She's got some real needs. Throw her a baby shower. 
buy her furniture, diapers, clothes, food, everything that the baby needs. Incredible. Jason and Amber Eccleston realize we live like four blocks away. So they meet with Helen, they buy her some groceries, take her to her doctor visits, arrange that they would be the ones to take her to the hospital when the baby comes and that they would watch her son, Jaden. That time comes, they've both got jobs, they help get her to the hospital, and then Josiah and Kim Parker step in and say, let us help watch Jaden while she's in the hospital for two, three days. Uh, And just two weeks ago, uh, she brought in her daughter, Olivia, into this world, not into a homeless shelter, vulnerable and at risk, but into a loving apartment, resourced into a community that loves and supports and cares for baby Olivia and her mom and her brother. Love that. Veronica and the Yos and the Ecclestons and the, and the Parkers took a situation that wasn't their fault, right? They didn't have to do it. It wasn't their fault, but they said, we're going to make it our responsibility. That's love. Another family in our church, uh, not that long ago, heard about a single mom in our church who had lost her job. She was in a very tight spot. Uh, they wished to remain anonymous, but they approached me and said, Gavin, we, uh, we heard about her situation, and uh, no one needs to know who this was, but we're going to take care of her rent for six months, additional time if she needs it, and we'll take care of any of her needs in the meantime. Uh, they wrote some checks, funneled it through the church, made it happen. They took a situation that wasn't their fault, and they made it their responsibility. That's love. That's the gospel. Another couple in our church learned about an African refugee family this last year uh, that was also in a difficult spot. Uh, Mom, dad, three kids, intact family, but dad couldn't get a job because he didn't have a car. He didn't have a car because he didn't have a job, and he needed a step up. And so this couple uh, just went out, bought him a minivan. No repayment, no strings attached, uh, nothing expected in return. Uh, They just said, we love you, so does Jesus, here's a van. Right? They took a situation that wasn't their fault, they made it their responsibility. That's love. That's the gospel. We first planted the church, John and Jeannie Wakefield met a young family uh, that had two teenage girls, mom in the home, who was doing her best to get by, but no dad in the picture. And they took it upon themselves to invade this family's life, to insist that they come over regularly for dinner, to go to the girls' games, to make sure that they had hugs and words of affirmation and a positive male influence in their life that loved the Lord. They took a situation that wasn't their fault. They said, we'll make it our responsibility. That's love. Last February, uh, one of our dear families, the Ingalls, lost their youngest child. Uh, terrible, sad situation. Their city group rallied around them. Uh, They said, there's a weight in your life that's unbearable to any human being. Let us take as much of that weight as we can. Uh, Came around that family, bought them so much food, they then had to buy them a deep freeze to store the additional food that they couldn't eat at the time. They planned the funeral. They paid for the funeral. They watched the kids. They surrounded this family. They said, this is not our fault, but we'll make it our responsibility. That's love. That's the gospel. A woman in our church lost her husband. Her house was falling into disrepair. City group noticed. They showed up several weekends in a row, uh, painted her house, repaired her house, cleaned her house, landscaped her house, uh, fixed things, proceeded to come back for weeks, months to come to take care of her lawn, to take care of her snow. Uh, They took a situation wasn't their fault. They made it their responsibility. And that is love. 
to take something that's not your fault and to make it your responsibility, to step in when you don't have to get your hands dirty and to say, I'm going to sacrifice myself, my comfort, my free time, my resources. I'm going to sacrifice myself for your good. City Light, that is what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Amen. City Light, you're doing it. Can I just say, good job. Good job, City Light. You guys are pace setters. You're so much better at loving than your pastor. You have no idea how selfish I am. But you guys are killing it. You know what creates a culture like that? Jesus. Jesus. He's the only one that can create that kind of culture. When we realize that we have been loved by Jesus and served by Jesus and generously forgiven by Jesus and empowered by Jesus, that's what creates that kind of culture. And we celebrate these stories, City Light, not to puff up our church family and say, isn't City Light awesome? We do it to say, isn't Jesus awesome? That he can take selfish, sinful canes like you and me dispense his forgiveness, love, and grace into us and turn our hearts into selfless, loving people. Amen? Amen. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. My prayer is that when people think about us, they would think, wow, not perfect, not batting a thousand, time's a little messy, but man, those folks love The people would know the love of God through the people of God who have experienced the love of God and now love like God does. May that be true of us. We're going to respond to this word this morning by remembering the love of Jesus through communion. It's in communion that we remember that Jesus didn't just love us in word. He loved us in truth and in deed. It was the love of Jesus that propelled him to leave the comforts of heaven and come to earth. And it was... Uh, The love of Jesus that took him to the cross. As we take communion, the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. The blood represents, or the juice represents the blood of Christ that was poured out as an atonement, a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, take the bread, take the drink, do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. For as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so City Light, uh, would we come forward this morning with grateful hearts? That the love of God is uh, not just an idea, it's been demonstrated. That this is the love of God, that he came and gave himself for us. Uh, If you're new to City Light, just some quick instructions. The Communion servers are going to come forward. Additionally, there will be some in the back. The band will play, and uh, there's no ushers. Whenever you're ready, go ahead and come forward. Receive the elements. They will rip the bread for you. You can dip it in the juice, partake that way. Head back to your seats. If you've got any sort of food allergy, gluten allergy, there's kind of a uh, gluten-free, allergy-free station in the back left uh, over by the library. So uh, everyone's welcome to the table if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll celebrate. Jesus, we confess we're unable to love. Uh, We see in Cain a picture of ourselves. Uh, Even our friends' good deeds make us jealous, and we think, why can't I be like that? God, we are naturally selfish and haters, but you, Jesus, have loved sinful haters like us. You've dispensed your grace to forgive us of our hate. You've given us your grace to overcome that, and you're now empowering us to love like Jesus. Jesus, would you make us a loving people? In those moments when we want to hide away on our iPhones on Facebook for five more minutes and just disappear and hide, 
Would the love of Christ compel us to take the trash out for our wife, to love our neighbor, uh, to give an encouraging word, to love in tangible ways? God, may that be our reputation. And it's for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.